Welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about West Side Story. Yes. Steven Spielberg's adaptation of In the Heights. It is not. (laughs) 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 It's so much better than In the Heights. It's a second adaptation of West Side Story, the uh, 1957 musical by Stephen Sondheim and uh, Leonard Bernstein, which was itself based famously on Romeo and Juliet. Yes. And Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book. Right, yes. And the original film from 1961 is obviously a classic. It's very, very highly regarded. I hadn't seen it before today. And knowing that I'd be seeing this with you, I thought I should, you know, I've got to to see this at some point. I tried to watch it recently and couldn't get past the first number. I found it so embarrassing. But I thought, no, I will just, I'll put it on today. And no matter what, no matter what, you know, if I don't pay attention to it, it'll be on in the background and I will sit through it. So I mm-hmm. did at least do that. And I have sat through it. And? It's sort of all right. You know, I was chatting away on Facebook and stuff while it was going on. So I really was not paying proper attention. I'm not the guy to come to for like real thoughts on it. But the thing was, I ended up watching it like an ITV Sunday afternoon movie that just happens to be on telly. Mm-hmm. You occasionally glance at it and go, oh, it was quite pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That, to me, was actually kind of the way to watch it, because I wasn't that interested, but constantly the songs are playing. Mm. And the songs are really, really good. The songs are great. Yeah, and, you know, they're not alien to me. I, I know a lot of them just for osmosis. They're real classics, and they're in the water. You know these tunes, even if you only know the hook. You know, you know these tunes. So in that very low-effort way I was watching it, kind of got along with it. Then seeing this new one, Spielberg's version, the question for me was... Why remake a classic? You know, that kind of, that thing I think we said before about Madonna was going to remake Casablanca and the joke was, finally, someone's going to get it right. <laughs> um, but watching the original, what, what it made me realise was that it's not a bad film. It's not like it needs improving, but it's very, very dated. And then watching Spielberg's makes me realise that just a different world in which movies are made, a different way of making movies, a different visual grammar, actually does a good job of updating it just kind of naturally. And frankly, I think there's a lot to improve in the original West Side Story. Yeah? Well, I know you love West Side Story. I love West Side Story. I I love the original. It's a childhood favourite. You know, but just because I love it doesn't mean that there aren't things that uh, could have been better. And I do think that uh, Spielberg makes it better. So what do you think stood... For improvement. I think uh, uh, Tony, you know, the Richard Beamer character, uh, the character played by Richard Beamer, is, is, be- is much better played by Ansel Elgort. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that uh, uh, Mike Feist is much better than, um, what's his name, who plays the same character? Riff. Oh. Russ think- Tamblin, yeah? Yeah. I love Rasta- Russ Tamblin. And, you know, he's a real movie star and you can't stop looking at him. But I think there's something about Mike Feist that goes beyond, uh, you know, Russ Tamlin's characterization. You know, Russ Tamlin's characterization is more like showbiz, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas I think there's something kind of true and painful and wonderful about the way that uh, 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 Mike Feist plays him, whilst also being, you know, an extraordinary dancer and Mm. kind of having that loose uh, uh, way with his body. I think he's, he's superb. Um, I love Natalie Wood in the original, and I think she brings something that movie stars do and that other people don't. Mm-hmm. And you, you, 
I think she's actually wonderful. She's been very much criticized because of the brown face. Yeah. Mm. And also because she was dubbed, though she was dubbed against her will. And the recordings that I've heard of her singing are, are lovely. You know, they're like Ava Gardner in Showboat or Audrey Hepburn in Funny Face. Yeah, they're not singers, mm. but they can carry a tune and there's something kind of touching about their voices in these songs. She was not the only one who was dubbed. No. I mean, it was standard practice, really. It was standard practice, though she was famously dubbed by mm. Marnie Nixon. And actually, I hate Marnie Nixon, <laughs> you know? So she's become kind of like this revered figure now because, of course, she dubbed so many people, mm. right? Uh, she dubbed Deborah Carr and The King and I and so on. But I just, I, you know, I think there's a reason why she made it as a dubber and not as a singer. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good voice. Yeah, it's a wonderful voice. Yeah, but it's also a kind of a characterless voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you know, I prefer uh, Rachel Ziegler's singing by far uh, to Marnie Nixon's. Do I do I do miss that kind of, you know, youthful, innocent, charisma, you know, that kind of extraordinary prettiness that Natalie Wood brought to the role? So, I mean, I think there are things you know, that are better and worse in each version. I love the dancing, I love the opening and the original. But I think this is a more complex film and it's a better film. Mm. Um, Thinking about Mike Feister, you mentioned, he plays Riff in this new one. I thought he was one of the biggest improvements Mm. over the 61 version because um, one of the reasons that I found the opening in particular of the 61 version very difficult to buy, quite embarrassing to watch, is that this is supposed to be a tough street gang mm. and they're going around, you know, clicking their fingers, pirouetting, stealing basketballs, like, oh, they're really hard. Mm. You know, and I just, I know it's a musical, I know it's a different era and all this, I just I couldn't buy it. And here, there's there's less of that and they are tougher and the fights in particular are tougher and more believable. Mm. Although, again, I think it's just really a difference in era. Yes, I, um, think, I think the choreography... Uh, you know, so Balanchine, who did the uh, original, it's a very famous choreography because it really brought jazz and street moves into American screens, and I think it's wonderful. Mm. But I, I actually thought this the choreography here was an improvement as well. Yeah. You know. Well, the thing is that Mike Feist as, as the leader, um, he's intimidating. Mm. <laughs> Even with all the, he's still dancing and stuff. Mm. He's intimidating in a way that Russ Tamlin is not. Mm. Uh, Russ Tamlin is actually kind of he's, he, his look is very different. His look is kind of boyish and cute, you mm. know. And and Mike Feist has this wiry thing going on. He's very gaunt, very thin, and you feel like on a physical level you could beat him in a fight, but he wouldn't give up. Like he's, you. Yes. <laughs> like, he's like he's quite kind of psychotic, um, and you can actually believe him as the leader in yes. a way that I don't think you can. And so you much. can also believe his fragility and his dependence on Tony and the history with Tony. I mean, you know, it's a much more complex characterization that's on offer. Yeah, and better played. And better played. I think. But I also think it's a more complex film. I mean, I think the beginning of this is wonderful, you know, where you're seeing this place as a ruin, yeah, as, some, as a place that's in the process of being lost. And why is it being lost to build Lincoln Center? Yeah, to... to yeah, gentrification. To, to, yeah, gentrification to provide culture for white people. You know, for white middle-class, upper-middle-class people. 
Yeah, and all these uh, all these people are being rendered homeless and their way of life kind of being lost for that. The film makes it explicit that it is about that from uh, the very beginning. Mm. Uh, and there's a, a wonderful Burt Lancaster film called The Young Savages, which is made the year before uh, West Side Story, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's actually set in the neighborhood that... Uh, West Side Story set in. The Upper West Side. The West Side Story is set there as the place is being demolished and the Young Savages is all about like poverty, drugs, kind of, well, Mm. young people who are left to be savages. You know, the kind of people that uh, West Side Story then turns into the protagonists. Uh, So it's just kind of, well, I just want to say it because... You know, that becomes so much a part of the way of the story that Spielberg tells, yeah? Mm. That this neighborhood is being demolished, and in a way, it's a whole way of life that's being lost. And also, it leaves people with nowhere to go, (laughs) yes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You get a very rich sense of place mm. and sense of what what stands to be lost. And underneath it all, there's just this subtext of that these people are fighting each other, and the enemy that's really stands to hurt them is not even shown in this yeah, film exactly you know, it is it's well it's shown insofar as you see the decay and then what stands to be built in its place yes um they'd, they'd be much better off unifying if they could yes except that what the film also makes clear is a white supremacist ideology an entitlement mm. uh, that is racial yeah the cop tells them you are the last of the non-white no-hopers or something like that. I'm sorry, the last of the white no-hopers. You know, when he gives them that speech saying, you know, everybody else basically improved their lives and moved away. Mm. You know, the only reason why you're here is because your dad was a drunk who knocked up your mom and, like, had nowhere else. Yeah. And I forget what phrase he used, but something like that. The the last of the white non-hopers or something, Mm. or no-hopers. So there's a sense that actually that they are entitled to supremacy. I mean, not even a better life. They're not even fighting for things or jobs or with these Puerto Ricans. They're actually just fighting to be superior. Yeah, territory and to keep them out and they just don't like them. And this is a film that's been in the making for something like seven years. So obviously it'll have gone through all sorts of changes. But, you know, it was really being made and shot with Trump's America. Yeah, in mind, in, in and around, and and it really made me feel like these. It actually could have been stronger, even, but it really made me feel like the Jets are like like the Proud Boys, like the Trump Youth. Yeah, you know, I don't think it could be stronger because I think if you look at the film carefully, it's so sophisticated, right? Because there's a concatenation of points that are made, I think, in very subtle cinematic ways. So, for example, it's interesting that the song, I Want to Live in America, yeah. Mm-hmm. in contrast to the original, in this version, it's completely gendered. Yeah, so it's all the women who say, I like to live in America, and it's all the men who say Puerto Rico's better. Was that not the case in the original? I know. I did watch that this morning, and it seemed like it was... I mean, the, the song is structured almost really as a kind of lover's tiff. It's like a domestic argument between him and her. But then the... The, the two genders, you know, the friends basically back them up from what I... Okay, well, I could be getting it wrong. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, my memory of the original is that it spreads out and you also have women defending one side of, or the other. Yeah, that some people prefer Puerto Rico and some people prefer America, but that it wasn't 
as exactly gendered as it is in this film, which okay. it is completely gendered. Yeah, it's kind of uh, all the men uh, uh, saying one thing and all the women saying another. And of course, this is where patriarchy comes in, right? Because the one thing about Puerto Rico is that it's much more a patriarchal culture than America. Yeah, kind of, you know, mm. the children might go to bed hungry, you know, but the women are more under the husband's thumbs. And, you know, that whole kind of conversation between the brother and the sister, mm -hmm. you know, is very much about that. It is about kind of male supremacy, right? So I think, you know, the film works all of these points in quite subtle ways, which have to do with who the song is given to and who sings which parts and so on. And then, of course, it kind of culminates in the rape of Anita, yeah, mm. which is you know, she's black, right? So everybody's vulnerable and, every, you know, kind of, you, there's Puerto Ricans and, you know, and white people, but within the Puerto Rican culture, she is the black woman. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, and she makes a point about that. And that makes her even more vulnerable. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, yeah. So all of that hatred is directed towards the black woman, yeah, amongst this uh, divide. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and that scene is additionally gendered with the um, girlfriend character in the Jets, the white blonde girl, yes. who, sensing you know what is going to happen here, tries to just get Anita out of the place. Yeah, like, she doesn't like her, but she wants to protect her from being assaulted. Yes, and she's not able to. And, and getting the girls out and closing the door behind them is quite a scary moment. Yes, actually. Um, so the other thing that I want to mention is the trans character. Right, who I really like, though for me it's also the weakest part of the film. So what I really like is how the trans character always hovers on the edges, mm -hmm. yeah, and you know appears at the ends of scene. She's he they is always excluded and made fun of and so on. But they are there, uh, you know, coming at the end of a scene or in the background or hovering and so on. But the moment, and I like that. But what I didn't like was the speech at Valentina's where, you know, yes, you're a jet, yeah? And then the camera zooms in to the, the, the gang member saying that, and then, you know, you get a close-up of her smile, and I thought, oh. Yeah, please. no, the line is, the, the line is, you did well, buddy boy. Yes. So is it to affirm that, because what's happened up until then is, I don't know the character's name, but they've um, been called a girl. Mm. And they don't say, I'm a guy, but they reject being called a girl. Mm. I'm not a girl. Mm. So... It's kind of it's fairly clear that that's what's going on, but it's not an affirmation of something else. But then when uh, the other character gives him this affirmation, buddy boy, there's this smile, and it's a very um, on the nose moment. Mm. And uh, you know, you kind of scoffed, and I yeah, I get it. Mm. <laughs> it's the one weak moment for me in the film because I think the other things. Well, I have one other problem, but almost everything else is beautiful you know i love the way initially when the film started i thought oh no shit it's going to be one of those battleship gray blue films yeah mm -hmm. because you know uh, the the first street scenes have that kind of it's color, a muted color palette yeah which i always associate with digital and then the film bursts out right yeah um which i think is fantastic and i love the um you know the moment with tony and valentina in the in the drugstore when he's deciding whether to go out or, you know, not to go out uh, mm. that night. And how you see everything from the outside and you see the colored neon, right? And it made me realize that that's a trope in the film. 
yeah the kind of you know the camera's always outside looking in or kind of or looking through bars yeah it's like yeah uh, there's always something in the way of you know all of the characters kind of being out in a world in a way that they're free you know and free to love yeah and that's kind of carried out i think in very beautiful ways because the you know the framings and the compositions in this film mm-hmm. are fantastic you know that that bit where they've already danced yeah but he finds her by accident and she thinks she's been following him and you know they're talking through the fire escape right and all of their faces are seen kind of through the bars of the fire escape mm. and the way that it builds momentum yeah so you you're only seeing parts of the face and then parts of the, yeah and then finally kind of you're seeing they're seeing each other kind of clearly mm. yeah still yeah separated by that i mean i just think it's kind of it's very beautiful it's spielberg's first attempt at a musical Yes, well, it's very good. And it's a big fish to try and take down for yeah, West Side Story, to remake that mm. as your first girly musical. Um, and I think he's very, very successful at it. I think I, I think there's so much really inventive staging. I really loved the way that the Officer Krupke number... Oh, that's fantastic. It's so full of... Because I didn't like that very much in the, the one I watched this morning, in the 61 one. Um I knew the song a little bit because um, the only reason I knew the song was because um, Larry David sings it in an episode of Kerber Enthusiasm and then a police passing police officer thinks he said fuck you and then he gets <laughs> in trouble with the police. Um, and he's like, does no one know this song? <laughs> <laughs> but then to see it here, you know, it, with them screwing up the police station and playing all these parts and having a lot of fun. And the guy who sings the bulk of the song I, um, I, I he's don't, wonderful I don't know which character it is um, so I, I couldn't tell you which you know who the actor is but he's terrific actually. he's terrific and it's great because it's 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 a song that doesn't have any of the principles in it mm. they just make it their own and it's great I like them. the way that it begins at a almost spoken yes because you can imagine and I remember the song it's a big showstopper yes and it allows for a lot of outsized performance right mm. And it begins almost like low-key, kind of spoken. And that actor that you're commenting on, it's like, it's not until the others join in the chorus, yeah, that the energy kind of picks up. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I thought that was marvelously staged. Yeah, and they just keep reusing and altering parts of the set and, mm. and props to, you know, make the one guy into a judge or make the other guy into a police officer and so on and so forth. And then they turn the desk into a, a, a shrink's, mm. you know, divan. It's really, really wonderful. And I, and I enjoyed that much more than I expected to. Um, the number that I think is the best in the film is America. The staging of uh. it. The dancing, no. the way it builds up into that whole street scene, I thought was just terrific. No. I really loved it. It's also maybe because I also think it's the best song. Well, no. I mean, I like it, you know. Yeah, you can't and... just say no. It's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, sorry, I just... Where are you going? I'm just getting a bit of coffee because I'm thirsty. I think the film is full of so much better moments. Right, I mean, I can understand why no, you no, like... No, I didn't say moments, I said number. It's my favourite number. Yes, uh, you know, uh, for me, there are others. Uh, and it has so many, right? So it's not that I don't like that number. Mm. Um, I actually think the only number that I think is bad is I Feel Pretty. Yeah, I think for me that didn't land. It wasn't well staged. It wasn't staged with wit, you know. So actually, all the camera moves and everything were great. 
Yes, and that last sweeping one across mm. the whole thing, or the show-stopping camera thing. So mm. the you know the dancing, all the women together in front of the mirror, right? I mean that is a dazzling shot, but actually the number is still being staged without much wit. Mm. Yeah, like I'll tell you the trouble for me with I feel pretty because I had a problem with it, and it's that it's in completely the wrong place in the film. That too. It comes earlier in the 61 version. Yes. Um, and in this, you've just seen the fight. And it's been pretty brutal. And uh, two characters are now dead. Her brother is dead. Mm. And it's all of a sudden, what's going to happen next? It's somber, it's uncomfortable. And then you jump straight into this ridiculous tonal shift into I feel pretty. Yes. All, also, you can get to. Well, it's basically so that you can do that song because they haven't done it yet. And it's also so that you can get to Maria, because at the end of that song, they all leave the building, and that's when she's told that her brother's been killed. Hmm. That's a real misstep in the film, I think. Tonally, it just it, it's a really bad move. Hmm. I think there are moments in the film that are magical. So, you know, when Tony is singing, uh, something's coming, right? And it kind of ends with him in a puddle of water with all of the lights reflected on the water. So it's almost like, you know, he's illuminated, yeah, but, you know, with the sky or with the stars. That is just fantastic. Mm. Um, I also loved the number. I don't know if it's a number, but it is a number. But I forget the song that goes with it. When they're dancing at the back of the gym, when they meet, yeah, and he starts at one end and she's at the other. Mm. Yeah, and they begin that little dance, right? And it ends with their kiss. I think that's a beautiful number, right? Because, you know, and I think this is where uh, Ansel Elgort comes in, because it's very difficult to play that, to, you know, to play sincere, yeah? And to play like, you know, kind of so overwhelmed by love, yeah, in a contemporary setting. Actually, you know, 20 years ago, some people would have thought it would be impossible that you could only do it if you put in quotation marks, right? Mm. Whereas this is being played full out, you know, sincere, uh, and the way that uh, Spielberg does that, allowing you to look at their faces, you know, the difference in height, it's all done through very few gestures and very minimal movement, right? You know, as, you, as, the, as the camera gets closer. I thought that was beautiful. Mm. Uh. I liked Ansel Elgort more as the film went on. I didn't like him very much early on. Um, I thought he was a big fat nothing, really, pretty blank. And I didn't mind his look. I think his look is interesting, you know, especially as he's so much taller than everybody else. Mm. And then she's so much smaller than everybody else. And so that creates mm. this kind of um, disparity and also at the same time a kind of, you know, like opposites attract sort mm. of thing. Um, I didn't think his voice was very good. He sings early on. I, I like it, I like it. I wasn't interested. But later on, as... It, it's around the time that um, he's trying to get the gun off um, Riff. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, and the fight, and after mm. that, that's when I thought, oh, he's actually, it, it's, he's starting to work for me. Like, I bought his character more, and I bought his performance a bit more. Um, actually, the, the the rumble scene, in which he's trying to sort of talk it out, I thought was terrific, because, you know, I go into this scene going, he's, he really is just trying to talk, and, and you know, I want this to go well, knowing that it won't, but, like, I want this to be mm. settled diplomatically. Mm. You know, it really kind of got its hooks into me. Although I, I did. What's the uh, Puerto Rican leader's name? Bernardo. Bernardo. Bernardo's just not having it, and he starts punching him and attacking him. 
and he just takes the beating initially, which I thought, that's a great... You know, he's really trying to be pacifist. Mm. And then, eventually, he has to snap. Well, and he snaps and, when his friend gets killed. No, he's... What? No, 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 he fights back, I mean. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, eventually, he has to snap and fight back, which is what starts a whole fight. Mm. And I didn't buy there was a reason for him to do that, really. But I, I no, guess I that's did, a minor I, thing. Um, I did, uh, and it was... Because Bernardo has some dialogue about him wanting his sister only because she's a bit of Puerto Rican tale that he learned about in jail or something. Yeah, but he was that's he was he was taking the the punches and not fighting back while that dialogue was happening. It was then he said, "I love her," and he just wasn't having it. And then Ansel Elgort fights back. I I I didn't like. I just didn't. I think, think there's flowed. a step there that you're missing, actually. That, you know, I'm not remembering well, but to me it made perfect sense. Mm. You know, why at uh, the moment that he snapped. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I, I, I didn't uh, buy that. But, you know, it's a minor thing, really. Um, the rest of the fighting, all the fighting, is terrific. Again, having sort of slightly been conditioned by the 61 version in which the fighting is... Um, to me, not all that convincing, but again, this is not a massive criticism because I think it's that is really being a product of 1960s cinema, mm. having something that felt a little bit more brutal. In fact, there were one or two points when I thought, I'm surprised this is a 12A, mm. you know, because there are one or two points where it gets a little bit... I mean, when Tony's got Bernardo on the floor and he's punching him in the face, like, it's obviously, it's been cut just so, so you don't really see anything. It's all done in the sound. But that makes it quite brutal. And I thought, Jesus, this is a bit... This is a bit harsh for a 12A, almost. Yes. Um, well, also, you know, it's meant to make make you understand that other side of Tony, that he is capable of this great violence, that he is also someone who comes from the same environment, really, yeah. that the only thing... And there's a reason he's been in prison for a year. Yeah. So the only thing that's... The difference between him and Riff is that he's been in jail for a year and that he's fallen in love. Mm. So that moment is the moment that kind of brings it all back. And actually, it's Riff that saves him from killing Bernardo at that point, which is, you know, then what brings on the tragedy that, in fact, then Riff gets killed. And then, you know, he's pushed to this other moment of violence where he kills Bernardo. Mm. Um, so, but I loved, I loved the Maria number. I loved the balcony scene uh, between them. Uh, I think he's very, very good. And he does... I mean, he's not very skilled, right? So there, there is that moment where Valentina tells him that Maria has been killed. Yeah, and he doesn't do that moment very well. His no. face crumples. And you could see that Spielberg also doesn't think that he's done that moment very well because he puts him at the corner of the room and then cuts away from him as soon as possible. Yeah, he right? Like, <laughs> he has to turn away from the camera. Yeah. yeah. You know, so... But overall, it's very effective. And to play that kind of big lug, yeah, who is kind of really sincere and sweet and capable of great violence, but also to be believable as, you know, a man in love in that way is very difficult. And I think he does carry it off. Um, We should mention, I don't think we have, that you've seen this twice now. You saw it yesterday. Yes. And then you saw it again with me today. And I think it's better... Before we saw it today, I mentioned offhand to you that Ansel Elgort has this uh, sexual assault allegation in his... You know, it came out in, I think, 2020. Um, from several years ago, but the allegation came out in 2020. 
Um, and you said, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And and what I wonder is, did that change the complexion of, for instance, his pursuit of Maria early on, which to me really sort of looked like stalking? No, I didn't find it that way at all. Um, though I think the only thing that you confirmed to me, I suppose, but which I got the, in the first viewing, is because, you know, he is a former ballet dancer. Yeah. Is he? Oh, good. Yes, he is. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think one of his parents is a very famous artist. Um, and his dad's a photographer? Or a photographer, something like that. Mm. Um, but I thought, you know, what he did very well, which is always kind of a problem with dancers, with dancers is that he really does convey this kind of uncomplicated heterosexuality. Yeah. I think, mm. you know, and particularly in those scenes with Maria, yeah, kind of at the beginning, there's a kind of a self-assurance about himself and his body and his sexuality. And as I said, it's conveyed with very minimal kind of movements, almost with a kind of body language, yeah, that he is at ease with that body, even though he's not very fluid with it. I thought, you know, for a ballet dancer, he'd be more fluid with it. Mm. Yeah, the, the way that Riff is. Yeah, though actually you then see him in that fight scene with Riff yeah, and you can see how physical, how physically capable he is. Yeah, though he never really evokes the kind of grace, particularly with his feet, that you would expect of a dancer. Mm. His dad was a fashion photographer for Vogue, and his mum was an opera director. Okay, there you go. So, two artists in the family. Yes, and, and he trained as a ballet dancer, I believe. At age nine, his mother took him to try out for the School of American Ballet, he studied there for five years. Yeah. There you go. So, I uh, guess. And actually, I see now that uh, Google is full of images of him dancing ballet. So. Right, thing. <laughs> well, I'm surprised that Moore wasn't made of that, really, because, he, it, I mean, he only actually starts doing anything of that nature in the number where... Um, I don't think it's even a number, but the, but the set piece where he's getting the gun off Mm. riff and that's late into the film and there's still only one or two jumps mm. but uh, you know it's in his use of his body because like I said the scene behind the gym you know where it's just arm movements basically you know but they're very well done mm. yeah I mean you know you need to be skilled to be able to do that mm. and you could tell you know in the way that he was moving from dance steps to then you know, reaching out for beams and, you know, landing, you know, in the place on the other side of the hole uh, in the port. He is obviously yeah. someone who's been taught to use his body. Uh, so I thought he was very, very effective. I thought it was great. I also want to mention, and I don't have anything that clever to say about it, but the production of the music I thought was great, really worked for me. I, you know, you were saying on Facebook, you've got to see this at the IMAX, and you told me, yes. see it at the IMAX, make sure you do... Um, and all this, you've got to see it on a nice big screen. It's a proper cinema movie. And I thought, you know, the image is great and worth it. And that it's been composed for impact. Mm. But the sound, actually, like, seeing it with a great sound system and hearing the numbers really fully kind of, whatever, displayed is such a pleasure. I think from the very first note of the film, you're having an experience that you will are unlikely to get at home. Because it begins with the whistle, yeah, which mm. is the signal 
yeah, that all the gangs have with each other. And, you know, first you're hearing the whistle from one side of the cinema, and then you're hearing it from the other, right? And actually distance is being created and loudness, yeah, to kind of indicate spatial uh, relationships. It's all being done through sound, yeah? Mm. Before the film even begins, right, kind of, you know, sound is being used expressively that way in the cinema, yeah? It's not all coming from the same place. Different speakers across the cinema were being used to different effects. It was fantastic. Yeah, that was terrific. Did you find it moving? Um, a bit. Um, yeah, a bit, not a lot. I mean, it's no, it's no fault of the performances or the storytelling or anything, which I think are all really good. Um, particularly Rachel Zegler, who plays Maria, and uh, Ariana DeBose, who plays Anita. She's wonderful. When they lose people and cry, I thought, God, they're good. Mm. They're really good. I'm really buying this. In a way that, you know, I didn't, as you said, mm. when Ansel Elgut um, believes that Maria is dead. He just, you know, he does, he can't do it. Mm. But they really can. Especially in Rachel Zegler, this is her first film performance. Mm. Um, despite that... Was, was I moved? I don't know if I was moved that much. I was so moved. I mean, but, you know, and then I, you know, part of the reason for wanting to see it again today with you is that the first time I saw it, I mean, I welled up about five times in the film. And I was thinking, am I welling up for the film? Or so something that's incited by the film? Or is it this baggage that I carry, you know, that I saw this film as a child and I'm thinking of all the things I used to think of? you know, as a child when watching the film. I Is it a personal experience that is drawing mm. and is making me well up? Uh, or is it something in the film itself? Uh, and it was both, obviously. It's, it usually is with films. Uh, but it still really worked on me this time. I mean, I was really, you know... Um, again, Maria, you know, the balcony scene, the ending, right? Uh, only you... Um, it, I thought, you know, I, it, it really, really moved me. The things that I thought I wish would have worked better, and, you know, I love Rita Moreno. She's so beautiful and charismatic and alive in the original production. I just adore her. But actually, I didn't really like what they did with the Somewhere number. You know, yeah, they turn it into sort of empty chairs and empty tables. Yeah, it's the film's equivalent. I mean, that is one of the great numbers in the history, you know, of the Broadway musical. It's been covered by everyone. I mean, my own favorite is the Tom Waits version, and it just didn't feel enough. Yeah, it almost mm. felt like they, they threw it away. That number. It was an act of charity for Rita Moreno. Well, or maybe it was an enticement to get her to be in the movie at all. Mm. But actually, I think they should have found a different place for it uh, and given it to a different person and made more of a do about it. The, the number deserves it. Um, so, yeah, and I say that with regret because I really love her and I think she's wonderful in the film. You know, kind of the, that bit of dialogue with, you sure you don't want to take her to a show or to a, to a movie? Give her some cheesecake? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes me laugh. She's wonderful. There's an awful lot of untitled Spanish spoken. I wondered film. about that. I, actually, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, well, uh, what were you going to ask? Whether I understood it? Yes. Uh, not, How it not. affected you? Well, it's interesting. So Spielberg's done this before, right? And I, when I say there's a lot of untitled Spanish, I mean there's nothing that has any subtitles. Mm. And when characters speak Spanish, which they do a lot, there are no subtitles. Um, and Spielberg's done this before, so. 
in Bridge of Spies, mm. Tom Hanks goes to East Berlin, isn't it? And he has his coat robbed, for instance, on the street by some German youths. And he speaks a little bit of German, and they obviously speak German. And so there is German being spoken, but none of it's subtitled, and it really contributes to this feel of being out of place and in a, an unforgiving sort of world. So it's, it's very well motivated. And here, there's an interesting thing, again, we've talked before, about how films will be set in foreign countries, for instance, and then they'll have some artificial reason for characters to speak in English. So some character will say, English, please, so that, you know, said in Inglourious Bastards, for instance, it's happening in France, and the one character says, can I speak in English? And the reason you then realise is because he doesn't want these other people to understand what he's yeah. saying. Here, there's an awful lot of, please, please speak English. When you're in a Puerto Rican home, we're trying to practice our English, mm. which is very, very artificial. And what I like about it is that characters will just keep reverting back to Spanish. It's how they speak. Yeah. So they'll say again, no, 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 I told you to speak in English. It kind of lampshades that whole technique of saying we're going to speak in English now when it yes. doesn't really make sense to. But then they don't, right? And, and so, like, and then you get this um, uh, Bernardo, for instance, keeps on reverting to Spanish to the point where he internalises the message that Anita is giving him. No, no, speak in English. And he doesn't, she doesn't have to say it eventually. He just gets annoyed with himself. Do you know what I mean? For like, for no. Yeah. I, I think it's a mistake. So, I mean, I like this thing of like reverting back to Spanish and not helping yourself. I mean, I think in bilingual or trilingual homes, that is what happens. People move from, shift from one language to another. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, either you find a way around it, I, you say, let's speak English in the home to practice, and then you speak English, mm. or you provide subtitles. Because I think, you know, we should be with Bernardo and Maria, and yeah, we should be with these Puerto Rican characters. And my suspicion is that what Spielberg is doing from a monolingual audience is alienating them. You know, yeah, I, I do get that impression. I get the feeling as well. I mean, I'm a monolingual audience, so I can sort of say that I, I didn't. Well, I didn't feel alienated from the characters, but I was also only picking up gists when they would go into Spanish. It reminded me of when I saw King Lear at the courtyard in Stratford mm -hmm. several years ago, and it was um, uh, staged by Trevor Nunn and um, Ian McKellen was Lear, and I'd never read the play. I didn't really know the even the bare bones of the plot. And I was stood up in the gods, you know, like looking down from the side over the stage and it being a kind of classical uh, production. There was no amplification, no microphones, nothing like that. And also then, you know, Shakespeare is in gobbledygook. So all I could get was kind of tone of voice and the occasional word and staging. And it really made me feel the importance of those things. But I was getting gists, mm. really, of the story from all that as opposed to details. And that's kind of what happens when the characters speak Spanish in here. So it's very clear when they're, um, uh, for instance, having the argument around the dinner table early on, when they go into Spanish, that uh, it's very clear what the character relationships are and the gist of what one will be saying to another if you don't speak the language. But it is only a gist, and wouldn't it be nice to actually have the dialogue? <laughs> exactly. And there is stuff that the audiences are missing. I mean... You know, there is kind of lots being said that is not being translated, you know. So um, I, I don't see the point of doing it that way. There's, you know, if I, I don't, I also don't see the problem with having like a phrase or two subtitled. You know, it isn't much, you know, to demand of the audience. And it's certainly a lot less alienating, you know, than just kind of leaving them um, mm. uh, deaf to what's going on. 
Yeah, um, because it's, it sort of says, like, it. it's funny because it, it sort of goes, you know, speaking Spanish is as valid as speaking English, right? So why should they have subtitles? You should just understand it. And you go, okay, but, but I don't, and I'm not going to. And this is being released in a English-speaking market. Why shouldn't it have subtitles to help yeah. out? The, you know, it, yeah. it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and it's a mistake. Um, but there were so many other beautiful things. <laughs> so I want to speak about some of the images, right? You know, the images where they have the fight in the salt dock or whatever it's called, you know, with the shadows from both sides, mm. kind of. You know, such a fantastic image, right? That then gets rhymed later when the police come. Yeah, but, you know, now there are two corpses, like, Mm. in the middle of it, right? I mean, that is just beautiful. Yeah, and the shadows are vast and outweigh Mm. the tiny figures producing them, Mm. which is wonderful. It kind of actually goes to what you were saying about, um, about the neon lights in the store, because what you were saying was it's about people being trapped you know, with it behind barriers and things. But actually what what I was picking up on was light being projected on people. Happens in the sh- in the chapel mm. as well. Um the light's projected on them through through the stained glass window and onto the floor. It's happens quite a bit and it's so beautiful. And actually you know it goes back to again what you were saying about um the fear at the start of the film that this is going to be very muted and not mm. very colourful and stuff because none of it is technicolour, mm. you know. It it does have, overall, a more muted colour palette, but there's a really rich colour design within yes. it. Colours you know? used so expressively. Yeah. Um, and images are, because, you know, kind of what you're saying, uh, there's also that moment where they're in the museum that is now... A, a church and they're bathed in light, but there's also that moment where Maria's making eggs, you know, and uh, Anita and Bernardo go kiss behind the screen, and almost like you know their faces become kind of colorful shadows, yeah. So you see the outline, and they're in different colors, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's very kind of vivid and beautiful, really. You know, and and that is is used quite a lot as a device, I think. Mm. Uh, so you know, it's a film to revisit just visually. I think it's splendid. I wanted to ask you, well, I wanted to ask you how long it's been since you saw the sixty-one version. Oh God, I think it must be maybe, well, at least ten, fifteen years, something like that. Right. Because I think I did see it. Uh, so, I, you know, it was a childhood favorite. And then I think when I was... I taught a course on the musicals. Uh, and I think when I initially designed it, I looked at it to see whether it was one of the films I would choose to use and decided against it. Mm. Um, not for any reason, just that it didn't fit with, you know, what I was trying to cover. Um, so I think that was probably the last time I saw it. I, I suppose I wanted to ask... Um because the thing is, even though I watched the film this morning, I didn't pay near enough attention to kind of form much of an opinion on this myself. Um, and I wanted to ask about the, the difference in the way that you think the two films um, cover racial politics, uh, kind of identity. We've talked about it a little bit, but, but in particular, I suppose, I wanted to talk about or think about the um, portrayal of the Puerto Ricans and how in how much depth 
you think how much depth you think they're given how well we understand their their I don't know their way of life their struggles because well, what we understand of the white characters is they hate the Puerto Ricans right and also they kind of they they come from sort of shit themselves and they're lashing out at these other people coming in it's kind of fairly um, legible as to the Puerto Ricans I kind of I suppose I wanted to get the sense or I thought I would get the sense that they are it's a struggle for them to survive with this onslaught from the white characters. I'm not sure I felt that, really. Ah. Um, yes, well, I did. Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, and actually, it's a line of dialogue. We're saying, you know, Riff has nobody. You at least have families, right? And it's true, you know, that uh, you get a sense that, you know, the Puerto Ricans are surrounded by family, that family is important and you know, and so on and so forth. But, you know, you also see see them doing all the worst jobs and kind of sewing mm. and cleaning and, you know, so... Uh, and it is at a prosperous time, yeah, in American society, right? It's, it's, it's the early 60s, uh, you know, America is at its peak in terms of labor. Mm. On the other hand, you know, the film makes also a point that Puerto Ricans are Americans, yeah? Mm-hmm. So if there's a reason why Puerto Ricans were chosen and not Dominicans or Cubans or, yeah, because actually the thing about Puerto Rico is it is an American territory, American territory, right? So so the the racial discrimination becomes all the more um, pertinent. Now the difference between the '61 film and this one is that the film, you know, was released at a time where all the struggles for racial equality were being fought, they were, you know, they were being flamed, Martin Luther King was speaking, the law had been changed very recently, right? Uh, so the film jived with the mood of the country, which is almost the opposite of now, yes? Mm. You know, so actually, in Camelot, America, as, you know, the Kennedy presidency was called, you had to be really reactionary and so on to kind of go against what the film was expressing. Whereas, you know, Make America Great is the dominant theme of the day, right? So, you know, what the, wor- what the film is speaking now is falling into a different set of years nationally, one can say. Mm. So, you know, the, the first film had this advantage in that what, what it was saying in a popular way, in popular media, was relatively new, yes, kind of. In South Pacific... Uh, Rogers and Hammerstein had a song, You've Got to Be Taught to Hate. <laughs> yes. You know, that was like 49, right? So, you know, to make a Romeo and Juliet story and base it around racial conflict in New York was kind of quite, um, I wouldn't say risk, but, the, you know, I, there hadn't been another show about it. Yeah, mm. So it was commercial and middle-brow, but also pushing boundaries within that, right? And also the type of music, right? What we forget is that the show was not really a huge hit, right? right? And the music was not a hit. The music only became a hit once the film came out and the soundtrack went to the top of the list. It took a while for... It was a new type of music, right? right? So it took a while for, you know, popular culture to catch up with it, yeah? Right. Like four or five years, right? So, and of course... Now, you know, the music is classic standard, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, the choreography, which I thought Ron Peck was fantastic. 
you know, but Balanchine's choreography again was like mold breaking, right? Like, you know, it was something like, you know, kind of new and shocking and, you know, to have them walking down the streets dancing that way. Mm. Well, you know, obviously it's, it was as much of a challenge then as it is to you now. So is it true that the film, the 61 film, where it could, um, kept the same choreography as a stage show? I'm not sure, but it seems to me that it would have because, you know, the dancers complained that on stage they were doing it on wooden floors, whereas a lot of it, especially the opening sequences, were actually really done on concrete, which was murder on dancers, as you can imagine. Mm. Uh, you know, you're landing on something that doesn't bend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So your, your, your legs take all the shock. Um, I think Spielberg's film is a, a better film I think it's coming out at a different time where the message is better and more beautifully expressed than ever, but coming into a much more challenging context where, you know, there's a lot more trouble uh, accepting it. Mm. Mm. It's the opposite of progress, yeah? So anyway, we should wrap up. Uh, so I, I recommend everybody see it. Everyone will love this. This is a great film. Go see it, you idiots. <laughs> so unequivocal praise from Jose. Uh, I think it's all right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not as viscerally anti it as you were when you saw the first number in the original. Yeah, well, I just wasn't having it, you know. I just... <laughs> You know, um, but then I basically realised, like, you know, how to watch the original, and that's not how to watch. Like, if I think I may, I think I wouldn't really have felt any tolerance for the original in a cinema setting. I would have gone, no, 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 this is not my cup of tea. Ugh. And in this, it's <laughs> 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 just that's just the way it is. But but in this, I didn't feel that. Mm. You know, I, I thought actually, I'm I'm going with this. It's got its hooks into me. I like the filmmaking. I like the imagery. I like the production of the songs, and I like the songs. Mm. So it it did work for me, and I found it easy to tolerate. All right, <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. I'll tell you one thing I think the original film does better than this. It communicates um, the kind of vigour of youth better. Like the idea... One thing that I kind of get in the original is that the reason that these kids can't keep themselves from pirouetting down the street is because they're full of energy and they need it to go somewhere. And it's actually, it feels more um, sexually active. Ah. Um, yes, and, I think you're right. And like, and also the, the thing about the, um, the rumble mm. and all the building up to the rumble, it's like they really want to scrap. Yeah. You know, and you feel that more here. Like more here, it's political. Yes. between the two groups and there it's because they're kids yeah, and they've got this energy sexual, it has yeah. to go somewhere yeah yeah. Um, that's something actually quite potent in this yeah they it, can't in, fuck so they've got to beat each other up yeah that's yeah. something quite potent in the 61 version that isn't here mm. yes yeah. that's a good point <laughs>